Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. Yes, that is correct. It is no longer the Fat Man and Little Boy Podcast. Now, there are a few Hidden Gems Movie Podcasts out there I discovered, so I don't know if the name change was the best idea. That's why I've got to be very specific. This is the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my podcasting partner, movie soulmate, and also eternal political enemy, Steve. <laughs> the former fat man of fat men. That's Little right. Boy. And uh, perhaps you've heard there has been some uh, big news over the weekend, and we're not going to talk about it. Here, here. Because uh, I think enough people are already talking about it. What we are going to talk about are obscure hidden gem movies that... Uh, most people maybe haven't seen or people don't talk about anymore. And today's episode for the Hidden Gems movie podcast was about great movies with dual role performances. So that is a movie uh, with an actor or an actress playing two separate roles. This was Steve's idea. Sorry. And the two movies we are choosing today are Dead Ringers, which is a David Cronenberg film, and Monty Python, Meaning of Life, which was my choice, which is obviously a Monty Python movie. We're going to start with Dead Ringers today. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Have you got to try the movie star? She's unbelievable. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her then. You drop her. I'm in love with her. I'll be in love if it does this to you, can it? Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Patients are getting strange. What are they? For working on mutant women. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Get him out of here! Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Now, David Cronenberg makes reality the ultimate fantasy. Dead Ringers. Separation can be a... Steve has given me the unfortunate task of trying to describe these movies for you guys. Good luck. Yeah, and as always, he has given me the movie that vexes my brain more in how to describe its plot. I'm going to do the best I can, and here's how I'm going to describe it. Dead Ringers is a movie where Jeremy Irons plays two twin brothers who are also gynecologists. They live together. They have a practice together where they help women who have fertility issues get pregnant. And they often pretend to be one another and sleep with their patients, uh, pretending to be one or the other person. Um, oftentimes, they will show up to events or uh, to social gatherings where one brother is pretending to be the other brother. And what happens in this film is... And they get a patient who is actually a famous actress. And what happens is one of the brothers, uh, who is named Elliot, uh, who is the more confident and cynical twin brother, played by Jeremy Irons, 
takes her out to dinner one night and he sleeps with her and he tells his uh, his younger twin brother, I guess by a matter of seconds, also played by Jeremy Irons, uh, whose name is Beverly, why he's named as a woman, we don't know, but it is brought up in the film and they never actually answer it. He says to Beverly, and Beverly is a shy, more uh, introverted twin brother, he says, you know, now it's your turn to go sleep with her, just pretend to be me. Because if it wasn't for me, Elliot, you wouldn't get to sleep with anyone because you don't socialize, you don't go out in public, you're more of a bookish nerd. So Beverly does this. I I guess he's done it in the past. He pretends to be Elliot. He shows up to this movie starlet's home and he sleeps with her. And what eventually happens is he forms an emotional attachment to her. And because she's an actress, she has a sense that something is going on, that's, that maybe someone's pulling the rug over her. And when she finds out that, in fact, there are two twin brothers, uh, which she did not know this in advance, she puts it together right away, which is that both the brothers have been sleeping with her. But she actually decides that she likes Beverly, and she's going to continue with him. And this throws basically a wrench or an unexpected life twist into these two brothers' extremely um, uncomfortably close relationship. And then because this is a David Cronenberg films, uh, things quickly get weird. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Steve, this was your movie choice. Uh, why did you pick it? <laughs> most of these, most movies that have dual roles, they do it as a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's painfully obvious as a gimmick, you know, it, it can be fun. Don't get me wrong. Uh, big business. Now that, that that was a fun movie with Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. I think never that was heard of it. Really? Nope. Maybe maybe we should have picked maybe that another one. hidden gems. It's a fun movie. Uh, Bette Midler in particular is really good, uh, but it's gimmicky, and th- these things are usually played for gimmicks. This movie is dead serious yeah. about it, and it has to be twins. Okay, and you need a terrific uh, actor. Um, did they get it in Jeremy Irons? Well, you absolutely. Know. He's a terrific actor. There's no question. You know what he. He's like Richard Burton. When he's good, he's great. Right. When he's bad, nobody's as bad. <laughs> I, What's I he been seen, bad in? Oh, uh, the for a paycheck, Dungeons and Dragons. You never oh, saw. Oh, well, that he doesn't count. So, you know, it absolutely counts. It's, it's a <laughs> classic Richard Burton horror movie kind of thing where uh, he wanted to make sure that uh, everybody knew he wasn't taking this seriously, so he goes insane on camera. So yeah. does the same logic then apply to Ben Kingsley? No, I've never seen him give a bad performance. Even he's in, in bad t- movies, okay. even in bad movies, there's there's craftiness to what he's doing. Well, who Always. Is, who is more to blame, Jeremy Irons for taking probably a hefty paycheck to do Dungeons and Dragons, or you, uh, experienced film watcher, for going to see Dungeons and Dragons? Who is more to blame? <laughs> hey, I saw that when I would I would see anything. Are you a Dungeons and Dragons anything. fan? God no. It was a go- terrible movie. Why'd you go? Well, of course. I back then I saw everything. Oh my god. I think gosh. it was the 80s or 90s. I saw everything. I didn't care. Jesus. No, it was well, you, well, you got you got to see the, you know, the bad movies appreciate the good ones, right? Okay, so anyway, here, here's what I'll say. <laughs> I did absolutely no research into this movie when you told me to watch it. I didn't even look who made it. I didn't look what it was about. I literally just went on Amazon Prime and watched it. And as soon as I saw it directed by David Cronenberg, <laughs> I knew I was screwed. You put your seatbelt on. <laughs> I just knew. I knew right away, oh shit, this is going to be weird. And it was. This movie is another in, in those long lines, starting in the late 70s with Scanners. Uh, Cronenberg's got, obviously got this terror issue of the body and pain and how it distorts the mind, you know? Okay. 
Uh, you see that with scanners, with with um, uh, the fly. You know, I mean, how how perverse. You know, I have to admit something. I haven't seen the fly. Maybe I should. Really interesting movie. As, as somebody noted, it has one of the most. In nineteen eighty six, you had two of the most terrifying birth sequences of all t- in movie history. One was with the fly. You got to see it, and the other one with, was uh, uh, aliens. What about the sequel his to movie? Actually, um, the Brood, because that's kind of about birth. I've never seen that. I've never seen the Brood, the Brood is actually so. Here's my thing about Cronenberg. I am not really a big fan of what made Cronenberg famous, which is mm-hmm. the first three quarters of his career, which these these crazy physical. I don't. I don't know a way to describe them. They're they're essentially anatomy horror. He is, is that he a good is way terrified. Yeah, yeah, he is terrified of what the body can do to the mind. Why? Well, apparently he feels that this. <laughs> well, I, I, it's indisputable that you know our our frailty can can change us. You know. So David Cronenberg had three movies in the two thousands. I quite liked. I liked History of Violence. <laughs> I really liked Eastern Promises, Promises yes. and I loved A Dangerous this Method, one, which a is dangerous method, A Dangerous sorry. Method, which is weird because I didn't like it when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And then after I watched it, it's one of the few movies I kept thinking about over and over. And I decided, you know, what? I do really like that movie. But those movies are far different than his early anatomy horror movies. Do you know what those three movies have in common? No, tell me. Viggo Mortensen? He, he didn't know. He didn't. Well, besides that. Yeah. Which is not, not insignificant. Uh, he didn't write any of them. Or Good. co-write. Good. He didn't get that. Can you imagine Dangerous Mind with Cronenberg contributing to the screenplay? And, uh, you know, it's not just the torturous mind. You but mean I'm a Dangerous sure, Method. I'm sorry. I, I, a dangerous, yeah, mi- dangerous, dangerous Minds mind. is a terrible movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, I've never seen that movie. Never it's seen one of the many uh, I, uh, white know. female teacher goes into the hood, raps a little bit, and uh, saves the kids. <laughs> and, and turns the kids around. So yeah. how condescending. Oh, it's, it's, That'll it's, be it's, another day for uh, movies we hate. Movies, yeah, which we have neglected. We, yeah. we, we've got to get back to movies we hate. No, uh, those three movies, you know, you, there, there's, I don't know, there's, there's a storytelling, maybe discipline mm-hmm. that's inflicted with a, with a fine script that those three movies had. Right. Actually, I, I, I've only seen parts of Eastern Promises. I haven't seen it all, all the way to mm-hmm. the end, but what I've seen, I've liked. I just got to sit down and watch it. But there's uh, the screenplay, I guess, maybe uh, makes him focus on the story and the performances and his hangups, his physical hangups, which are intriguing. Yeah. You know, uh, they, they don't they don't come to bear. I agree with you. In fact, part of the reason I like Spike Lee's um, Black Klansman so much is it's one of the few scripts he didn't write. And I think it's... He did. No, he... Co-write. He, Co-write. But what really happened was he received that script fully finished and he added to it. And you can see exactly which parts he added to. Now, whether or not you want to say those are the weaker parts of the movie or the stronger parts, what I will say is that most of the movie that I love in Black Klansman is very clear the parts he did not write. You know, I hate to get off on the tangent, yeah. but you Go know, for it. this happens all the time. Directors uh, take screen credit when what they're really doing is they're shaping the script. Mm-hmm. Powerful, excellent uh, directors do that. Some people think, uh, you know, Mankiewicz got ripped off with uh, Citizen Kane. Well, that, that, we'll uh, find out uh, <laughs> thanks to David Fincher. <laughs> How's that? Is he oh, making you a movie don't know? about no. Yeah, David Fincher literally just completed a movie for, Met- for Netflix called Mank. Really? Yeah, it's about Mank. Whatever that guy's name is, Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. I think it was. I think Herman J was the one who wrote. Uh, uh, it stars Gary Oldman, your favorite actor, as a uh, Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. Wow. It's probably Mankiewicz. If I had to guess, it's Mank. It's really Mankiewicz. I don't know. The, the host of uh, boy, we're really getting off track. But the host yeah. of Turner Classic Movies. Um, I think he pronounces his, and he he's related because he's yeah. like a grandson. Yeah, I think it's Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. Well, the W is a V 
in Yiddish. If we were in Eastern Europe, then I'm, I can That's see right. almost That's certainly right. make with this is an Ellis Island change. <laughs> Getting back when yeah. when um, uh, Cronenberg has control over the material, he is going to explore pain and gore, and I think its effects on the mind, and and maybe even vice versa. Okay, so here's a question: Are these horror films? How would you describe these ridiculous um, anatomy? I call it anatomy horror, but is it really horror? Is it psychological horror? Is it a thriller? I mean, what what is it? A romance? I, I think it's fair to call it a psychological anatomy horror. Okay, he, he he's not shallow. He's not getting his horror. Okay, from the gore, mm-hmm. but he's not turning a blind eye to the gore. No, you know, he does prey on the, the very primal fear we have of deterioration this is one of his least gory anatomy horror films you know that's true in the first half there's almost no gore no there's really only one scene that's like explicitly gory and then that's it there's i mean for for his movies you know um i would say this is the least gory of his anatomy gore um all right so let's 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 dive deep into these characters real quick the two twin brothers yeah basically there seems to be a codependency, which I, I'm not an identical twin, but I would assume is somewhat of a recurring theme maybe amongst twins, a type of codependency that borders, in my opinion, on romance. Um, the, the, the sensitive brother, Beverly, it kind of seems like when he actually forms an emotional attachment to another person, which is this actress... The uh, more cynical, suave uh, twin brother, um, Elliot, he seems jilted like a lover would be. Um, did you get the sense of that at all? Oh, it's, it's, it's right there in the script, absolutely. Uh, I, think, I think Claire, played by uh, Genevieve uh, Bougeau, yeah, good, says... Yeah, good pronunciation. Is, I, I am hoping it's right. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, I think the first think one is right. It. I think it's Genevieve Bougeau. Uh, she says, it, is Elliot jealous of me? Yeah. And, and it's not just... But the, the thing that really struck me as disturbing, it's not the jealousy of losing a friend. And when I say, you know, like a jilted lover, I don't mean to compare that kind of jealousy. I mean, there is a scene explicitly in this film where Elliot tries to have a threesome with yeah. Beverly and another woman. Mm-hmm. I, there seems to be a legitimate sexual attraction, an incestuous sexual attraction that Elliot has towards Beverly, but I'm not sure. Did you pick up on that? It's impossible not to, because okay. that's one of the most uncomfortable scenes yeah. I've seen in a really long time. But this harkens back, I think, to uh, what attracted Cronenberg to the material. Imagine having another person as an extension of your body. Yeah. You know? Uh, there's one point where uh, Elliot has a, has a like high-fashion girlfriend, uh, and he says... Whatever is in his Beverly's bloodstream is in mine. Okay. She doesn't see that. She says, "No, you're just making it so." You, uh, if he if he puts uh, pills in his bloodstream, she takes a very practical notion that no, you're not getting those pills. You're only making it so. He believes different. He believes that Bev is another body part. That's right. You know. And and what's really um strange about this is you. Th- the movie, and I'm, I'm going to do some spoiling, but not entirely. And then we can discuss later whether or not we should even spoil this movie. It's mm-hmm. super old. I'm leaning towards not spoiling it. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is that they present Elliot in the beginning as basically the obvious villain or cynical character of this film. But what you actually find out by the end is that Elliot um, feels a 
deep, deep, um, almost paternal uh, affection towards his brother and the need to protect him. And Elliot makes, I'm not going to say what he does, but he makes a sacrifice in this movie to help his younger brother, uh, well, his younger twin brother, but that matters. He calls him younger brother throughout the entire movie, but he makes a sacrifice for him that is completely selfless. And it's hard to basically totally damn this character when you see what he does. And what the movie kind of inches along towards is that Elliot is the more devoted brother. He is the one more devoted to the relationship that they have than Beverly is. And Beverly is more, um, I guess, drowned by Elliot's clinginess. Um, Bev seems to be the brother who wants out more. Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, at some point... Uh Bev and Claire's performance hits the rocks. Yeah. Right. And uh, Elliot recognizes that he's he's hooked on drugs. Uh, what, what is it? Uh, well, I want to talk about barbiturates. Are we getting to the drugs or to something else? Because we got to have a whole discussion about the drug addiction theme of this movie. Well, I just want to use one line that I think yeah. clarifies what you just said. Um, he comes back. To, he, somehow he gets back to Claire. He, he, he sneaks his way back out of the apartment where Elliot's trying to um, get him off drugs. And he says, he says to Claire, I think I was hiding from the wrong person. I think that is uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, where, you know, it seems like Elliot was trying to keep Claire away from Beverly. And Beverly says, I think I was hiding from the wrong person. So who do you think he was implying? I think he should have been hiding from Elliot. You know, I have to go back over my notes because he could just as easily have said that to Elliot about Claire, but I don't think right. so. I think you said it to Claire about Elliot. So we have That's a pretty important point. I need to get that nailed down. And we have to talk about a, another um, pretty important aspect of this movie, which is drug addiction. Yeah. Basically, what happens is the actress um, is hooked on barbiturates, downers, right? And she gets um, Beverly also addicted to them. And what happens in this movie basically is Beverly is really not a good drug addict. Like the actress, her drug addiction doesn't seem to have any negative impact on her life. But mm. Bev, the second he starts taking drugs, just spirals out of control. And in fact, it is when the drug addiction comes into this movie that it becomes a super Cronenberg-style movie. Things start to get very weird very fast. And what happens is, and you sort of already explained it just a second ago, which is that Bev gets so addicted to barbiturates that um, Elliot locks him in basically like the side apartment of their practice to keep him off the drugs. And what happens is, and this is the weird stuff between the twins, Elliot says that he needs to get in sync with Beverly for some reason. So he starts taking barbiturates, I'm not sure why, while he's trying to get his brother off of them, and then the, the situation flips. And now Elliot becomes a terrible drug addict, and Bev gets clean. Now here's what I want to say. This is a horrible depiction of drug addiction. The second these brothers start taking drugs, I mean, a day later, they are strung out. Like, you don't get to see the gradual progression that drug addiction takes over your life. It's almost like a bad uh, dare commercial where it's like kid smokes one hit of pot and the next day, you know, he's in an alley with a needle sticking out of his arm. It reminds me um, very much of David Lynch. I've always had this theory that David Lynch is the ultimate conservative, the ultimate conformist, where even the slightest bit of a rebellious behavior to him seems so out of bounds of uh, the norm of the ordinary and so incredibly destructive. To me, it's a very naive sense of not only drug addiction, 
but just the idea of breaking any type of social or medical norms, it just, it just immediately leads these twin brothers down such a self-destructive path. And also, side note, this movie is extremely loosely based off of the true story of two twin brothers who were gynecologists that were found dead together within the same matter of days. Yeah, I think it was from barbiturate withdrawal. And and so they know for a fact for one brother was barbiturate uh, withdrawal. They don't know for the other brother who died a few days later, but they were found together in their apartment. And oh crap, I just realized something. We spoiled the movie. You just gave we, the movie away. All right, sorry guys. <laughs> By the way, um, looking at my notes, apparently yeah. he said uh, that that line about I, I, was, I was hiding from the wrong person. He said it to Elliot okay. about Claire. And now I can't remember exactly. And it is, a, I admit it's an it's a important point, but it does speak at one point, you know, Bev was very suspicious of Elliot and wanted to get away from him. Mm-hmm. And whether he thought that was important. Now, I don't have a problem with its depiction of drug, drug addiction um, because, you know, this movie is not a finger-wagging movie. It is not a no. cautionary tale. Not at all. It, it, the, the drugs are less important Excuse than me. the mental deterioration that these that these twins suffer and why they suffer them. Mm-hmm. Now here's here's the thing about this movie. It might surprise you. Go for it. I think this movie is a fantastic movie halfway through. Which this half? movie Which half? first half. First half. Okay. I think the first half is fantastic and it's because of uh Genevieve Bougeau as much as She's excellent. She is a, she is such an underrated actress and an underused actress. She well, she, she is was, underused. I yes. looked at her. I looked at her Wikipedia profile. Not a lot of hits for her. She she has and it's, her career spanned a tremendous amount. I remember her in Coma. That was a that was a groundbreaking role. Coma. It was, she she played a conventional hero. She was a woman in a conventional medical thriller, and she was the hero until the very end. When so this is my problem with the movie, though. This is a good movie until it becomes an obvious Cronenberg movie. <laughs> like that thing, you could have told this movie about these two twins who have this really sick relationship and do these really heinous acts of impersonating one another, and still have a very dark twisted and strange movie which you have in the first half which you have in the first half but then the problem is it becomes an anatomy horror film in the second (laughs) half where it becomes very cronenberg like there is a surgery scene in this movie that i'm not going to spoil but is one of the most insane visual things i've ever seen (laughs) where basically there's this surgery that's about to occur at their practice and they are all wearing red gowns isn't that what did they look what did they look like they look like demonic cardinals of the of the vatican I have this written down. It looks like like he was being dressed as a, as a priest. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, 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 he's he's getting into some in, sort of religious Im- horror, horror, religious horror imagery. The movie's you know? weird enough. It doesn't need the added <laughs> extra weirdness of the director. Like the plot itself is weird, and then he says, "Well, you know, I've got to put my own my own little David Cronenberg touch on this." Now, I have a thing about David Cronenberg. I'm not sure he's a good director. There is a certain Roger Corman um, quality to his movies, both visually and, you know, everything about them. There's a layer of cheese in them that I'm not sure is deliberate or not. <clears throat> I don't think it's cheese. Okay. Here's why. Because I think it's sincere. I think he's got a sincere terror. But it's like, pain. I mean, there's some bad lighting, some bad camera work. I don't know. There's there's a certain element of amateurishness. I didn't see that. I, 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 you didn't, I didn't see it in see this? No, no, yeah, that. that's just but how I feel. Let, let me go back to, to the first half and about... Jean-Vierre Bouchot, uh, Genevieve Bouchot. The, what I liked about, the, what, what I th- found was so unusual, especially back in 1988, 
her character was incredibly vulnerable mm-hmm. because she's going to these, uh, you know, these gynecologists in yeah. hopes of having a child, so, yeah. you know, getting getting a little late in, in reproductive in her reproductive life, and she finds out that she has, I think, three chambers instead of one chamber. I forget exactly it's like the anatomy. Affected uterus. Yeah, they, they use some it's, or a tricameral uterus, mm-hmm. but basically she's like three openings to her uterus, which actually prevent her from getting pregnant. But the character Elliot, in order to sleep with her, tells her it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, Elliot is is a conventional bastard to her. Yeah. Whereas Bev is is a lot more sensitive, but what I liked about her character is she's vulnerable, but she's smart. Oh yeah, she's not brittle. There's a strength there. She's very vulnerable, and she's smart. She picks up on this. There's none of this fencing around which you would expect, like this slow dawning. No, I want to deny. No, she na- she 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 catches on it immediately, and she nails both of them at a, at a restaurant scene. And I think it's important uh, that she's an actress. Because I think part of what he's saying is, you know, she can tell when people are acting. I mean, you know, it's it's a smart choice to have her be an actress because she knows right away right. Right. Something, right. something's amiss here because this person is acting with me. Like, every time she sees one of the brothers pretending to be the other brother, she notices the personality changes right away. And she says to him, before she can completely confirm he's two different people, you seem to have a schizophrenic quality to you. Which, by the way, The Prestige, which is a movie based off a book is extremely similar to this, which I'm going to give away the prestige now, which is about two twin brothers who are magicians pretending to be the same brother. The only difference is they pretend to be the same brother all the time. Nobody knows that they are twins. There is just one of them in society. But it's just a strange, it was just a strange similarity I picked up on. Um, the movie, I for me, the movie doesn't complete the the first half expectations I had as soon as they lose Claire, Claire goes away, and for the rest of the movie, she's nothing more than the sympathetic girlfriend, you know, the, the kind that they give yeah. sitcom actresses. She, she you know? loses all of her, her inner strength and her, her, dyna- her dynamic qualities to her. You're absolutely right. They, I thought we were going we to have two hours of this incredible psychological interplay between the three, and then halfway, uh, halfway through, as you said, he becomes obsessed uh, with, with um, you know, the the addiction and the twins being twisted up and in, in, intertwined. Well, it's important you mention that because the reason I like the later films of David Cronenberg is he ditches the anatomy horror, but he's really good at the psychological tension between people. I mean, that's all three of those movies I listed, History of yeah. Violence, Eastern Promises, and The Dangerous Method, are all about these tensions between people. And the reason this movie goes off the rails in the second half is he ditches that for his crazy, ridiculous, I'm sorry, but like B horror movie crap. I just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm not a fan. So, Steve, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a little while now, since about April, I think, and we always playing with the format. And I got some friends uh, who listen to podcasting, and they're stupid jerks, and I hate them. <laughs> but uh, they suggested that we structure this thing a little bit more and come up with our uh, categories and things for our listeners to uh, look forward to in the future. Pandering to you, listeners, just for you. And so, in fact, <laughs> what I'm probably going to do is I'm going to add some uh, cheesy, you know, D- radio DJ shock jock uh, style <laughs> sound effects, maybe like a siren or, you know, like a, like a, what are those horns that people, you know, those air <laughs> horns, you know, something really. Well, there ob- goes the Peabody. Something really obnoxious. But one of the things we're going to play around with is um, five questions. So I told Steve to come up with five questions about this movie that he wants to ask me. And I think now is the time to do it. Sure. 
And the first question... Did you memorize it? Memorize what? Your questions? Because I don't see you looking at a note. Oh, I, I know the first one off the top of my head. God, you're a pro. <laughs> Thank you. you. It's okay. You'll be hearing the rustling of paper in just a moment. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite line in the movie? And I think that's a question we should always ask because right. if a movie is really good, it probably has a great line. Yeah, yeah. You have to discount silent movies, of course. But you yeah, know. so that's and I wasn't prepared for this one. Um, and well, let also, me give you mine. We're let also going to call mine. it most quotable. That's going to be our catchy, most quotable. I'm sorry, our most catchy quotable. hacky yeah. film review podcaster <laughs> thing. Which is what everyone's saying we should do, which I haven't wanted to do since day one. But let's give it a spin. Yeah. There is this scene where uh, Bev is talking about, talking with Claire, and I think she's asking for pills. Okay. Uh, she's depressed. And to justify it, he says at one point, you know, she's a little ashamed that she needs them, and he says, pain causes character distortion. And I think that sums up a hell of a lot of this movie. Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, that sums up like larger over like arcing like character development in all movies i mean that's kind of the point you know <laughs> you put a character you put any human being through extreme amounts of pain it's going to change fundamentally who they are but put it put it in context of of you know in David terms of Cronenberg, David Cronenberg, yeah i mean literally it can physically thinks, distort them yeah uh, your, your mind goes when you feel pain you can't trust your mind yeah uh, yeah they, they, these guys are up up a creek once once the, once the pain starts coming once the addiction starts taking hold okay i'll tell you my favorite my favorite line uh because it's so disturbing and it happens right away in the movie so like i said i knew as soon as i saw the name david cronenberg that i was screwed <laughs> and that my wife who was sitting next to me watching it that she was also screwed because she doesn't know anything about david how does your wife like it she hated it did she really and she also works in the medical community she's a nurse practitioner uh -huh. at a urology clinic oh my gosh so the 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 female and male anatomy uh, -huh. uh of that the nether regions the southern regions of the body is her expertise <laughs> So you can imagine her horror at this film. Wow. Yeah. That 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 we we could we could do a podcast on on her opinions alone. Well, anyway, so <laughs> the movie introduces the two twins when they're children. I would say about ten years old, and they're very creepy. And they're walking along their neighborhood, and they're talking about I don't know some ridiculous like medical scientific stuff. You get right away that they are smart and creepy. Yeah. I think it's a fish reproducing yeah. in water without yeah. having to touch them. Exactly, yeah. that's right. It has to do with like fish not having sex. And they get to this house where there's a little girl uh, sitting on the porch, and it's kind of a couple lines, but one of the, the, one of the twin brothers, who must be Elliot, uh, looks at the little girl and he goes, would you like to fuck us? I think that's exactly what he I says. I think it is. It's, I think it's exactly it's, what he says to the little girl. It's shocking. It's it really, shocking. It's, it's shocking. shocking. And then the little girl... Maybe, Her response is more shocking. Yeah, it's even better. Well, first... Well, first she says, uh, how dare you? Like, I'm going to tell my dad that you were talking dirty at me. And then she says, you don't even know what fucking is. <laughs> <laughs> and right away, the whole tone of the movie is now set where yes. you took child actors and you had them do this. And you know this movie, nothing's off limits. Nothing's out of bounds. And it really, set, I mean, it's smart. It sets the tone of the movie right away, which is this is going to be some fucked up shit. Yes. Uh, it also says that uh, women are going to vex these men. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they don't understand no. women. They only understand each other. All right, what's your next they, question? They understand the biology of women really well. They're, 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 the, they're the best. They yeah. don't understand what, what makes women tick. Um, who gives the finest performance? Jeremy Irons as Elliot, Jeremy Irons as Bev, or uh, Bougeau as Claire? Uh, it's got to be Bougeau. I think you know what I, I agree. I think the the problem is so one of my issues I had with the movie 
is that even though these characters pretend to be one another all the time, it does sort of the cheap twin thing that Adaptation did. And part of the reason I didn't choose Adaptation, A, is because I think it's a well-known enough movie to not be considered a hidden gem. But also it's like, hey, let's make two twins who are totally different from one another. And it's a really easy writer's way of distinguishing twins when in fact twins might be honest to god more similar to each other in personality that these two characters are like why would one twin have glasses and the other doesn't it's a very cheap trick in my opinion um shouldn't they medically sort of be on the same trajectory why would one of their eyesights go and the other wouldn't i'm not a doctor uh maybe i'm totally wrong about that but one thing i do know is that it's used specifically to to distinguish the twins i actually wish they had been more similar to one another um their accents are almost identical and what, by the way why do um two two young boys obviously of 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 british ancestry uh why do they still have their british accents if they spent their whole lives in canada <laughs> that's a good question um <laughs> Maybe but anyway, let's, let's not Well, maybe their father was British, because I have a cousin, and uh-huh. his he's born in America, but his father is British, and he speaks with a British accent. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, if, if, you, if you're raised by someone speaking with a British accent long enough, I think it'll be permanent. Interesting. J- just as a, yeah. a counterpunch, uh, I, I knew that this guy, he was uh, from the South, and he took his daughters to Australia. Yeah. They came back with nothing but pure Australian accents, right. even though it was, you know, father. It, is, it, it, it kind of threw me a little bit, but it's, it's a kind I of I got a friend who lives in Australia who likes to pretend he has an accent. Oh, and he says, he's a poser. He says, people I say I sound Australian, I say, no, you don't. Um, one more thing. Yeah. Jeremy Irons gives a dynamic performance. I mean, I like Jeremy Irons. I think he actually is great in this movie. Um, I think, I just think she has the better character and as a result, has the better performance. Um, yeah, for the first half, she she does stuff that you you, you don't see. Here's some casting do, information: kind of. Robert De Niro turned down this role because he was uncomfortable with the subject matter, and William Hurt, who I think could have been excellent in this role, turned it down because he said playing one character is hard enough. I hate to say this, I think William Hurt would have been better. He might have. I don't know. I, I love Jeremy Irons. I'm a fan of Jeremy Irons, but I think William Hurt definitely could have done it. Okay, what's your next question? All right, now, do you buy? Elliot's meltdown. No, no, <laughs> that's my whole point. Elliot takes because you- Elliot. Elliot is fine. Yeah, he isn't pill popping. He's a stronger brother. Until we don't find out that until he comes back from Claire's. Yeah, he and he, and, and, and 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 if and bet. Well, the problem is, and it's a kind of a plot hole. He Beverly gives him some second all. Yeah, but he seems like he's back on track. He does, he seems relatively stable. He comes home. And Elliot is a uh, is a basket case. He takes one pill and then is <laughs> off the rails. I mean, it's just I'm sorry, it's just an extremely um, simple and naive look. At, even if it's not meant to be about drug addiction, it's clearly taken by someone who's never seen a drug addict in his life. <laughs> All right, what's your next question? This question you've already answered. Okay, um, and it's incredible because I I have the the same answer. What movie did David Cronen uh, David Cronenberg get over his Body mind obsession, and we I think we both it agree was, uh, it was a year of violence, a, year, a history of violence. History, I'm of sorry, violence. a history. Yeah, of violence. yeah, that that's yeah. the one. Although to be fair, there's some extreme violence in that movie that is kind of anatomy horror, but it's not about anatomy horror. It's just the way right. that like Quentin Tarantino does violence, which is extremely explicit. Right. It, it was it was necessary. Yeah, I it like that necessary. movie um, with William Hurt. Yeah, that's right. Um, last uh, last question. Do you know the title? Of the book this was based on, but was rejected because it was the title of another movie by a producer 
who produced two of David Cronenberg's previous movies. This producer, that should be the question because you obviously know. No, I don't know. You know the title? The title. No, I don't oh, know. Okay, good, I don't know the answer to this question. What's, uh, what was the, the original title that the book was based on that they, could, that they decided not to use because another producer who had produced Cronenberg, a couple of Cronenberg movies asked him not to because he wanted to use it for a uh, silly comedy. A silly comedy? Yes. I have no idea. You tell me. Twins. Oh, my God. <laughs> the oh. one with, with Schwarzenegger and uh, I think Dead Ringers is a much better title for this movie. Oh, absolutely. You absolutely. Know, first of all, you got the word dead in there. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, this is a horror film. And, and also, but these brothers are dead ringers for each other. Yeah. One thing, by the way, I don't buy in this movie is that Beverly could ever convincingly play Elliot. That, I think, is the major... In a movie full of plot holes mm-hmm. and you know, logic holes, I think the major logic hole is that this really nervous, diminutive brother could ever play and convince anyone that he is his confident, uh, you know, cynical brother. In the movie, he doesn't. He doesn't no, effectively. But they share women. They, they share women, but Claire sees through him right away. But why is she the before, only one? Well, but, well they, don't, they don't mention this, but they obviously alluded to this having succeeded before. Yeah, Elliot says, you know, you've yeah. done it before and all yes, that. Yes, you, 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 you have I'm no not, sexual experience. I'm not I feel like any person with half a brain could be like, boy, you mm-hmm. seem different today. Well, but, but um, I will defend the movie in the fact that Beth hasn't deteriorated to that point. You're right. He is, he's, a, he's kind of a shy wallflower yeah. type. But he hadn't deteriorated to the point you where you could... You also never see him pretend to be Elliot. You never actually see it. You no, never see no, him put on the act, which I think is a problem. Um, I'm not convinced by it. I think there was only four questions. Am I wrong? Um, well, the quote thing. Oh, the, the quote, quote thing. thing. Yeah. Okay. Final thoughts on this movie? I think it's, I think it's interesting to watch because you, you do have one half of a great movie mm-hmm. and the second half it's not like it, it's dull <laughs> so there are people you, out there who are going to love the second half because they love cronenberg that's true i'm not one of those people that's true yes I, I i i highly recommend this movie i think it's 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 uh it's a terrific watch i don't highly recommend this movie <laughs> um are we still doing our smart or not smart let's go sure. with, let's do smart or not smart you say smart obviously first half smart second half not not very smart i'm gonna go with smart I think it's a smart movie it's just not for me it's yeah. just i don't i got a friend his name is greg and he loves this kind of shit um i don't <laughs> i am much i am a much more conventional movie fan i like serious drama often uplifting you know about the human experience not the not these twisted dark you know uh examples of what it is to be alive that i have no experience with it just does not appeal to me you want movies that can test how much how much how many punches to the gut you can take (laughs) yeah it's just not it's just not for me i'm not into the the b genre in any way if anything even smells like a b movie to me I usually turn against it. I, I don't think this movie... I don't even think the second half of this movie is a B-movie. I really don't. I don't think there's has any the way you can say that. It, it has the trappings, I, I, but he is still delving into the psychology that concerns him. Well, uh, maybe Cronenberg. he's so successful because he can balance that, that tightrope. Mm-hmm. But it's a tightrope, and on the other side of it is <laughs> well, B-movie making. He doesn't reject uh, the B-movie trappings, but I don't think that's all the second half is. All right, we're going to move on to my choice, which is a real cheat choice. I'm going to be honest. Um, it's Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Don't let the meaning of life Why are we pass you by. You ever wanted to know what it's all about? Nope. He's got really weird. Let Monty Python explain it all for you. In the film that proves once and for all that there is death 
after life. Shall we take our cars? Why not? Yes, why not? The meaning of life. Is there heaven and hell? Do we reincarnate? The reason I chose this movie, quite frankly, is just because I really like it. And I think it's the Monty Python movie that doesn't get discussed enough. And the reason it somewhat falls into our dual role performance is because like every Monty Python movie, the actors play multiple roles. Now, it's fair. Now, it's what fair. is this movie really about? Um, if you've ever seen this movie or even done the least bit of reading on this movie, you will already know it is basically the movie version of a Monty Python episode. It has no direct plot. It is a series of extremely high-produced sketches. And the only thing that threads them together is that they are supposedly about the meaning of life. Um, and even the Monty Python uh, crew, the entire, you know, the guys have kind of admitted that they came up with the idea of the theme after they had already written all these sketches. This was really just an idea for them to make a sketch movie. Um, but I actually think it's fantastic. I'm a Monty Python fan, and I think that the meaning of life while it's not a completely consistent film, because it's a sketch film, I don't, I can't think of a single sketch show ever that was consistent. You know, the very, the very yeah. nature of having sketches means some are going to be better than others. But I think in terms of humor and insight, I think it's their, I think they reach their peak in this film. Um, we can go sketch by sketch, which I don't think we're going to do. Uh, this is not one of my five questions to you, but Steve, do you like this movie? I like this movie, but there are some serious dead spots. Yes, and they're know? all in the second half. Yes, um, the first half. As, as, in yeah. fact, as soon as as soon as they announce this is the middle of the yeah. movie with the, with a crazy fish, yeah. uh, all six uh, Monty Python members dress up as as uh, fish at the beginning of the movie and in the middle of the movie. Um, they're they're announcing uh, the middle of the film, and the movie goes dead for a little while. Yeah, they basically tip their hand, their hat, whatever you call it. Um, they tip you off that, hey, guys, uh, this movie may not be as uh, exciting anymore from this part out, and it's not. <laughs> but what I will say is the first 45 minutes of this movie is some of the most breathtaking sketch comedy and sketch comedy filmmaking I've ever seen. And I'm going to just sort of describe it in order, and it's not going to be as funny, as you know, obviously, <laughs> if you watch it. But it starts, and the first sketch is birth. And basically this woman, I think it's from a POV shot mostly, her legs are up, she's waiting to give birth, and these two doctors, played by John Cleese and Graham Chapman, come in the room. And basically the whole idea is they need all these incredibly expensive uh, medical instruments to get this child out of her. Uh, all these, like they just keep wheeling in more and more machinery. And the whole idea is, you know, we've been, you know, human beings have been giving birth for hundreds of thousands of years, but these doctors are acting like it's impossible for anyone to give birth without all these ridiculous tools that the hospital's buying. And in fact, at one point, uh, one, of the, one of the instruments they called, they go, and we need the machine that goes, bing! Um, <laughs> and they have no idea what it does other than the fact it goes, bing! And it's very expensive. Yeah, and it's very expensive. <laughs> and in fact, uh, and the room keeps getting more and more crowded with nurses and administrative staff. And then at one point, the, uh, the director of the hospital comes in and he's like, you know, so what's going on here? And this one's played by Michael Palin. And the two doctors are explaining, you know, well, we are going to do what is called a birthing. And he goes, ooh, a birthing. Wonderful. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just absolutely clueless. And then at one point, the director of the hospital sees the machine that goes bing. And he goes, oh, I see you have the machine that goes bing. <laughs> um, and it's just a great, great example uh, of bureaucracy. 
of human beings over reliance on technology in modern society. I think the movie starts off very strong with that sketch. What do you think? I I I think it's very funny. Can I use can, can we go with the um what is it favorite line or what, what did you call it? I called it most quotable. That's our most hacky. quotable. In fact, where's my sound? It's like boop, 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 most quotable. Can can we go directly to that now? Please. Can I get to the yeah. my uh, the, the one line that that uh, stands out cuz I hadn't seen this movie in years. Yeah, good. Until, until I'm recently. Glad. And uh the woman's lying on her back, and she says, oh, what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> and John right. Cleese says, nothing, dear. You're not qualified. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> hilarious. It's so condescending. That's my, yes, it's my favorite line in yeah, the movie. Yeah, it's like she's the only person who's qualified <laughs> biologically to, you know, to give birth. Um, okay, so then the movie transitions. I have to make sure I have this exactly right. I believe it transitions into the Irish factory town. Am I correct? The third world. The third world. <laughs> they, right. they, they call right. it the they third world, and it's Yorkshire, I think Yeah, it's it unbelievable. So they call this... So that was the birth, basically, in the first world, right? A rich... Growth upper, and learning, I think. Yeah, yeah. A rich, upper-class person giving birth in a clean hospital. Right. They move over to the third world, oh, right, right. which I'm going to tip my hat right now. This is my favorite sketch of the movie, <laughs> and I would suspect most people's favorite sketch in this movie, where basically Michael Palin... Uh, he's coming home from a factory that's just closed down. He used to work there. This is a real smoggy Irish town, right? And he comes into his small little brick home that you're used to seeing in really working class uh, neighborhoods of England and Ireland. And his house is filled with, I'm not kidding, probably at least 100 children that are all <laughs> his own, right? And what he, and I'm going to now uh, tip my hat to what is uh, my favorite line in the movie. He goes, he goes, well, children, I've got some unfortunate news. He goes, he goes, the factory is closed down, and frankly, I can't afford to keep you anymore. So I'm selling the lot to you for scientific experimentation. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, so, so he's telling his kids, his hundred, at least 100 kids, right, that he's got to sell them off for scientific experimentation because the factory town closed. Or, the, yeah, the factory in this factory town is closed. And the kids start asking him, basically... <laughs> Why are there so many kids and why can't he wear a condom? And basically what he what he says to them, uh, he's you know, he's trying to explain that the that the the Catholic Church does not allow condoms, but basically he goes on this long and extremely eloquent diatribe with the Catholic Church. He goes, you know, the Catholic Church and its many mysteries, which protects the sanctity of our lives and shows us the inner the inner light to live, you know, for our outer, you know, our the our outer selves. He goes, he goes, and he goes, I and I would be betraying all of that if I put this little rubber thing on my cock. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens in this scene basically is he breaks out into a song. And the song is called Every Sperm is Sacred. Now, I don't know how famous Every Sperm is Sacred is in the Monty Python canon, but it's just unbelievable. And basically, he's explaining how, through song, he can't wear a condom because every sperm is sacred. And if it if a sperm you know falls on the floor, it's a disrespect to God. And it turns into this incredible work of direction and musicality I mean, these, it's kind of like how the South Park movie was just a fantastic musical in its own right, even though it was a comedic musical. Um, the music was bona fide, and it is the same in this. And Terry Jones, who's one of the cast members of Monty Python and also directs this movie, in my opinion, he also directed Life of Brian as well as Holy Grail, does his finest directing, I think, I've, in any of his films, which is this big-budget, 
large scale uh, musical with nuns dancing and <laughs> priests dancing about how every sperm is sacred. Before I move on, Steve, any thoughts on this uh, this scene? I, I I thought it was I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it's right up there with. Um, uh, Always look on the bright side of life. Right. The, the profane uh, right. song, and it from, also lets uh, you know right away that nothing's off balance now because the first sketch is not offensive, really. But the no. second sketch is letting any everybody know, you know, hey, we're gonna do what we want in this movie, which includes roasting the Catholic Church and its contraceptive policies. Yes, um, it's interesting. Um, he says, uh, Palin says, yes, yeah, so that's why I can't. If only the, the church won't let me wear this little rubber thing at the end of my cock. Yeah. Now, M- Michael Palin's a very sensitive guy. He's a sensitive actor, and he's concerned about that obscenity, mm-hmm. speaking it in front of the kids. He said socks. He said sock. And, and then they, they dubbed it. You know, I, I, I've been surprised uh, how sensitive uh, uh, Michael Palin has. And I, I really respect that. He mentioned, uh, I remember, uh, he, he had some comments about A Fish Called Wanda, okay. saying that it was more cruel a movie than he would have liked. I wish that basically really, the I, film I, I, industry thought more about how they use children in movies. Well, that's see, that's interesting um, observation because the last movie we we just did yeah. had children, yeah. really small children, using the word fuck. And personally, how startling it is. It, but using it as a verb, which is important that's true. because that matters a lot for the ratings, for the rating system, the MPAA or whoever rates movies. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times they'll give movies rated R based not on how many times they use the word fuck, but how many times they use it as a verb. So if I say, what the fuck is going on here? I could still be a PG-13 movie. But if I say to a woman, I want to fuck you, now I'm an R movie because I'm using it as a verb. Incidentally, um, no no one under 18 should be listening to this podcast. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, call me uh, too conservative or provincial, but I, I do have a problem with having children curse in movies. Setting aside, you know... Um, you know the usefulness of it, the yeah. art, the artistic achievement. Yes, I just don't think it's worth it. Not just cussing, but literally sometimes the subject matter. I mean, yes. the Wes Anderson film Moonrise Kingdom, and I'm a big Wes Anderson film. I still have problems with it because mm-hmm. these are kids who aren't even 13 yet in their underwear making out. Basically, it's just I get he's trying to explain that children they get those sexual you know uh, urges. I guess young, but I still have a problem with sticking them in front of a camera and having them do it in front of a crew. Yeah, it's it's I I don't want to be some sort of troglodyte who's against art, but it's it's not worth it if you're, you know, and we lord you know if, if we're subjecting kids to something that they're not ready for and lord knows we've seen a lot of kids wrecked by yeah. by Look, Hollywood. If if if, it, if the movies weren't making money, nobody would ever have their kids do this and it would never be accepted. I mean, the only reason children are allowed to act in movies is because it makes the movies money. It has nothing to do with the welfare of the child. We could get into uh, you know Linda Blair and the Exorcist and whether yeah. that was a crime. A movie I just her. watched, by the way, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. But yeah, I mean, uh, had they, you ever seen it before? I had seen it in high school, and mm-hmm. I wasn't um, I wasn't mature enough right. or intellectually developed enough to really uh, fully appreciate that movie. And I actually loved it the second time around. But that being said, acting is bad for kids. Kids should not act, in my opinion. Maybe on stage with other kids, they shouldn't act with adults in front of cameras. It just becomes immediately creepy. Uh, it, it, it was meant, I think, and we're getting way off the topic, but yeah, we'll get it, back. it was meant to be, it was meant to be an adult, um, it, it's an adult yeah. sized job, film acting particularly. Yeah. It's an adult sized job. Should yeah. be left to adults. It okay. Really so should. do you mind if I keep going? No, with go these ahead. sketches. Okay. 
So the next sketch, which for me is a 1A and 1B of my favorite sketches, and I think the next sketch is the smartest sketch in the whole movie because it's so specific. But basically, the way this sketch transitions is Michael Palin is leading his hundreds of kids <laughs> to the laboratory where they'll be experimented on for money. Um, and they got their heads drooped. Droop, yeah, they realize what's going to happen being, to them. Singing, and you can see them in the background. Yeah, and they're yep. singing really sadly. Every sperm is sacred. And as they're passing by, they're passing by the home of an upper middle class Protestant man and his wife. And the Protestant man is played by Graham Chapman and his wife is played by Eric Idle. And basically, he goes on this extremely long rant where he goes, bloody Catholics and their bloody, you know, hundreds of children. And he basically goes on this long diatribe about how he's so proud to be a Protestant and how he doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't approve of the Catholic Church's, uh, you know, policies on contraceptives. And he goes... And he's saying, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, not allowing contraceptives. He goes, it's a good thing, you know, we're not that. And then his wife goes, well, what are we? And he goes, well, we're like members of the Church of England and proud of it. He goes, <laughs> he goes, you see, my, my darling wife, in our religion, we can do whatever we want sexually. He goes, you know, if I want to wear a tickler on my cock, I can do that. <laughs> and she goes, ooh, really? But the point of the scene is this. As this extremely uptight upper middle class British man is talking about all the things that sexually he is allowed to do uh, in his religion, the Protestant religion, you become, it becomes very clear quite quickly he doesn't do any of them. <laughs> that in fact, he never has sex with his wife. And his wife, as, he, as he's describing all the things he could be doing to her, is getting extremely hot. <laughs> and the problem is he's not going to do any of it. And it's an extremely pointed criticism at upper class Protestants in England. And it's just the idea that they have all this freedom and they don't use any of it because they're so conservative. It's it's an extremely insightful criticism of a culture that I know nothing about because I don't live in England. But I think it's fascinating. And I think that while it's extremely socio-political and not really, I don't know if it has anything to do with the greater themes of life, I think it's an extremely incisive bit of satire. It's even more it's it's even more than that. It's what you just said, it's satire. Yeah. We've lost that. Mm -hmm. in, in with 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 the sketches and the and the uh, you know, late night uh, hosts, we've completely lost the ability to see absurdity. Monty Python took a jab, took a jab at the Catholic Church. Then they were being fair. Then they took a look at the Protestants, and yeah. you know the the exact opposite also has its absurdity. Yeah, I, th I think she said. I think she said. Uh, you know, he, he complains every time they have a kid uh, because they can't use rubbers. Yeah. Every every time they have sex, uh, they, they they have a kid. Yeah, and and his wife says, "Well, that's just like us. Yeah. We have two children, and we've had sex two times." Exactly. He's he's while he slams, you know, the the superstition. Yeah. Of, of the Catholic Church, he also they also see the absurdity of you know the, the far more liberal view of the Protestants. They're, they're, they they can see uh, absurdity on both ends, which is something um, tragically, and this is getting a little political yeah. that we've lost. They only uh, late night comics, Saturday Night Live, all the sketch shows, and even in the movies, they they can only see absurdity from one point of view, which means you're missing half the absurdity in the world. And they're also pointing out the irony that. It, 
the Catholics who have all these rules get down all the time, right? <laughs> they got all these rules they have to follow, but they like to have fun and they like to get down yeah. versus the Protestants who don't have any rules and are extremely uptight and conservative and don't take advantage of any of it. And if you think about it, the more Catholic people are the Protestants or basically the Protestants would be better served with Catholicism based on their conservatism <laughs> and the Catholics would be better served with Protestantism. You know, they probably have less the people who are having tons of sex <laughs> They're the ones who should be Protestants so they could put on rubbers, and the people who aren't having any sex should be Catholics. Um, in regards to your point, though, I think part of the reason they're able to do this is that they're in England, and their politics is just way less supercharged. It's, you know, well, it was also 40 years ago. Well, that's a good point. I, I, I don't know what the politics now yeah. of England is like. I just get the sense that it doesn't dominate the cultural uh, divisions in their country the way it does here. Yeah. But like, I, I really I did admire... Their ability to see absurdity on both sides. I, okay, I really so do. What was the next sketch? Because now we're getting towards, gosh, I got to like, do you remember what the next well, then sketch the, was? Well, then you get into the schoolmaster stuff. Oh, was that it? Because that sketch is fantastic. Yeah, well, at, at the, the the part in the church uh, where Michael Palin is is, ta- is praising God and, gee, we're all so impressed with you, God. You're yeah. just so... so. So let's talk about it. So basically the next sketch is like yeah. education or children or whatever growing up. They growth go, and... Growth, whatever. Yeah. So they go to a, uh, a children's school, right, of young men, of just boys, and... It gets to basically a classroom where they're going to do sex education, and most of the main cast members are playing little boys, but they've also got kids in the room, and uh, John Cleese is playing the instructor of the sex education. He's the boy's teacher, and uh, basically what occurs is as he's trying to teach them what intercourse is like, he uh, they do what is the most accurate and I think realistic depiction of middle-aged baby boomers having sex that you'll ever see, which is basically he invites his wife to the class to have sex with him. And she walks in the room. And uh, at one point, as she walks in the room, he says to one of the boys, like, do stand up, Johnson, while my wife's in the room. <laughs> um, and basically, his wife comes in, and they start making small talk the, as she's disrobing, the small talk that two baby boomers coming back from a party would make before they're going to have sex. Yeah, the, the Millers are inviting us over for dinner tonight. Yeah. Well, if we must. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, as I, they're disrobing and getting naked. I don't want to be creepy because I'm not... I don't picture my parents having sex. Not something I like to do. But my parents were baby boomers. All my friends' parents were baby boomers. And it just, it just struck me immediately as so authentic, the way they talk to one another... Mm-hmm. Just the entire dynamics. So basically, this headmaster is having sex in front of his students with his wife in the most baby boomer way possible. He's like, oh, right there. Oh, thank you, love. Like, you know, very good. (laughs) And then at one point, I think the kids are laughing and he says something like, excuse me. Like, you know, like, are you paying attention? Like, it's just, it's a fantastic sketch. Um, But the reason that the kid's laughing, I don't think it's because they're, you know, that they're seeing two naked women having uh, a a man and woman having sex. The class is acting as bored and distracted as if he was teaching trigonometry. That's That's the gag. Yeah, you're right. As, you know, two grown people are having sex in front of them. Which, obviously, this is not how children really act. But maybe uh, maybe their point is that, uh, uh, you know, British uh, teaching has become so sterile, even showing two people fornicating would bore the tears out of kids. Or or just just the absurdity of it. it. It's funny because before... You know, his wife comes in, so they do the demonstration. He asks, uh, you know, where do we leave off? And none of the kids can remember. If this was a real sex education, that's all they could think about is where they left off. Um, he says, um, how, how do you, um, 
what's the purpose of foreplay and or what's an what do you do during foreplay one of the kids says um um uh you i think you 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 rub the clitoris and and he dresses down this boy as saying there are so many other techniques you can use because he's like what's one way to uh to you know um Get the vaginal juices. Vaginal flowing. juices. That's and it. And then yes. the little boy goes, you know, uh, rub the clitoris. And he goes, rub the clitoris. <laughs> he goes, he goes. Why not a kiss, boy? Why not a nice kiss? You don't have to go searching for the clitoris like a bull in the out the gate. <laughs> this, this is what we do before we stampede towards the clitoris. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, I, I, he's making he's making just sex education as as boring as the dullest philosophy course yeah. imaginable. It's 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 funny. It's one note. It's kind of one note, but it's, it's definitely funny. one note. And actually, not, a lot of these uh, that's the problem with a lot of these skits is it's just one we're note. We're not going to go through every sketch. The final sketch I want to talk about because it might be the most. It may have the least to do with the meaning of life, um, but it's probably just for straight up laughs. It's the sketch that could be in a Monty Python uh, show the most which is basically now the army. And there is this drill instructor played by Michael Palin. And he's walking up and down all these, you know, soldiers, new soldiers who are standing at attention for him. And he's talking about how brutal, you know, this, 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 uh, this, what do you call it? Boot camp or, you know, whatever it is, is going to be. And he's talking to me and he goes, he goes, you wish, you know, you were never born, you know? And he's just, he's talking about how terrible the experience is going to be for them. He's a real hard ass. And then all of a sudden he sees that one of them is, you know, kind of seems like off in the distance, so to speak mentally. And he goes, excuse me. He goes, is there somewhere else you'd rather be right now? <laughs> and the guy goes, well, well, yes, sir. I suppose I'd rather be at home playing the piano. He goes, playing the piano? <laughs> goes, Palin, Palin gets several octaves up. With yeah, he, that. Goes, he goes, playing the piano? You'd rather be at home right now playing the piano than with me crawling through the dirt? He goes, well, all right then. Off you go. Off you go. <laughs> and he just lets the guy go. He lets him go. And that marching joke, up and down the square. I think. Yeah, he goes. Yes. He goes. Yeah. He goes. You rather be playing piano than with me marching up and down the square? <laughs> all right. Off you go. And that joke just continues throughout the entire sketch. And I think it's just for pure belly aching laughs for me was mm. the best sketch. Maybe not like the most visually stunning. Maybe the least cinematic. But in terms of just the outright irreverent hilarity of it, it doesn't say anything about anything other than this this drill instructor. Every time you tell him where you'd rather be, he lets you go. It's a, it's a one note. It's also a, a one note joke, but it's a pretty good joke. Yeah, it's a pretty good joke. So, Steve, any any other thoughts? Because we're not going to go sketch by sketch, especially no, no. since from here on out they start to descend in quality. Yeah, especially when they focus on Americans. I don't know. Maybe the Monty Python. Uh, maybe they just don't have their teeth in America. But they, they, they kind of go after Americans in this in this restaurant sketch. It's really dull. Um, the movie kind of rebounds with the last skit. Yeah. Uh, with yeah. with the death skit. Yeah. Where yeah, they, yeah. They, they've got a whole bunch of um, you know uh, middle class yeah. upper middle class people, mm-hmm. and death comes a knocking. Death comes in and. Uh, you know, dresses each of them down, and it's fairly funny. But then it it it, it ends on kind of a stagnant note. That that last uh, when when they all go to heaven, and yeah. they, they have this song that's just completely loses me. The truth is, you could stop watching this movie after the first half. I mean, literally, when they introduce the second <laughs> half of the movie to you, if you wanted to turn it off, yeah. you'd be fine. And you're no, not going to lose a lot. You're yeah, you would be no worse for wear, and you'd still have a great memory of the first half. All right, mm-hmm. I'm going to get to my questions. 
Question number one, sound effect. Boop, 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 boop. My hacky sound effect for my question segment. <laughs> um, should this have been a movie? <laughs> you know what? Um, yeah, yeah, I've got, it, it's different. Yeah. It, it's, an anth- it's almost an anthology of sketches. Well, it is. Can you imagine uh, a sketch anthology movie now coming out in theaters? Because I can't. No. They tried it a couple of years yeah. ago with Movie 43. Which was a disaster. It was a disaster and it deserved to be. There wasn't anything funny about was any Andrew of those Was Brody movies. in that movie? Because I think that might have been the... Everybody f- was in that movie. Oh, Kate Winslet, f- Hugh Jackman. There was a yeah. ton of stars. Yeah, how did, they, how did they pull that off? That's so strange. Well, they, they, they seduce them with uh, total freedom and then they get... Uh, to- that's yeah. what Movie 43 is about. Was, yeah. The right, whole right. concept was, yeah. you know, certain artistic freedom. And then they spend it on these stupid puerile unfunny sketches and yet it seemed like for some reason adrian brody was the only actor where everybody decided he's not allowed to be in movies anymore even though there were tons <laughs> of actors it was like the final nail in what was a promising actor's career um and he seems to have largely derailed it himself but anyways i'm gonna get to new choices yeah okay i don't know i don't think you actually answered this but which was the best segment for you um you know what? I actually like a, a sketch we didn't talk about, and oh, that's them in the jungle with John okay. Cleese asking uh, uh, Michael Palin and Eric Idle, what happened to the leg? Okay, so we should talk about this. <laughs> there, the, one of the sketches right before the second half is basically um, in the military, and they're in the, the English uh, armies in Africa fighting the tribes of Africa. The Zulu War, I the think. Zulu the Zulu War, Zulu, and yeah. all the English officers, the officer class, they just have absolutely no idea what's going on. They're just a total bevy of idiots. Um, you know, and, and basically, the, the whole gag is around... The, the 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 lower ranking soldiers are literally in the midst of fighting combat. They are having this awful, brutal, you know, uh, battle with the African tribes. Meanwhile, the officers are acting like it's not even happening. Some of them are shaving. Some of them are drinking tea. And at one point, one of the officers, played by John Cleese, wanders into the tent of another officer, played by Eric Idle. And Eric Idle's missing half his leg. It's clearly been taken by a tiger, right? But he has no idea. And they think, what, it was like a mosquito? They just have no idea. They're just absolutely... They look at the netting and there's a hole in the yeah. netting. Well, that yeah. must be the mosquito. And, and the whole idea of this sketch, I mean, it's pretty on the nose, but I like it, is basically that the upper class officer class of the British military are fools. That they're just absolute fools. They only get to be officers because they're rich. And all the fighting is done by the common man. That's in, what, in, in, in their obliviousness to the suffering yeah. that they see. Uh, it's a, it's, they a, it's a condemnation yeah. of the officer class of the English military. But what I like is the gag afterwards uh, oh. where they, they come upon these two. I don't know what uh, they're, they're played by. Well, also Michael Palin and um, who's the other. I think it's Eric Idle. I think it's Eric yeah. Idle, even though Eric Idle is the one who lost his leg. Yeah. But this is part of your dual role. Yeah. Thing they're pretending where, to be a tiger. And they're having they're they're two homosexual officers, and the way they have sex is by getting in a tiger outfit and banging each other, because that way they can pretend to be a tiger. I swear to God, I didn't get that. Oh, you didn't get that? No, I thought it was so absurd that they didn't no, even no, want you to know. No, they're gay. So basically, the I idea didn't even is get that. we're getting pretty graphic here, but one gets behind the they get in a tiger outfit, which uh-huh. means one of them has to get behind the other so they can have sex, but nobody knows they're having sex because they're in a tiger outfit. Yeah, but when we first see them, they're like. 20 yards apart, remember? I think that, boy, he must be enormous because he's way, one, the, the head is over here. Well, I think here they the separated as soon as they heard, you know, the officers coming. I, I guess but they were be. having, But they were having sex. I never got that. And maybe that's why I like it because it's so absurd. They don't even bother to explain. Which is good. I wish movies yeah. didn't explain things more. And, and they're trying to come up with excuses as what they're doing there. Okay, you so know? here is... I love that sketch. 
Here's my third question, which is also one of your questions, and it's the only way, remember I said this movie's a cheat in terms of our category of dual performances because there's so many dual performances. They're all giving multiple performances. Who gives the best performance? John Cleese. John Cleese. Okay, and in which not roles? Even, not even a... In which roles? Well, as a schoolmaster... He's fantastic, yeah. I, I thought he was terrific. The waiter mm-hmm. in what probably the most famous role that we didn't go over, which is really repulsive. Which is not, it's also not a great sketch, in my opinion, which is the obese man at the restaurant. It gets so much praise. And it, 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 lends, it lends critical um, cred to this movie, and I think it's kind of overrated, too. And I think a lot of the... I think a lot of the members of Monty Python didn't think it was all that great either. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, uh, you know, um, his unflappable waiter bit was pretty good. Okay. I'm going with um, with Michael Palin. I think, you know, every sperm, that, the every sperm is sacred <laughs> sketch, and then the military drill officer, for me, I, I'm fine with either of those two choices. Yeah. Um, although I think Graham Chapman's performance as the uptight Protestant might be my favorite, even though I think Michael Palin overall does the best. You know I gotta go. I gotta go along with that because he nails he that nails uptight press. I've seen these movies from you know these characters from the movies of the '40s and the '50s, the the totally yeah. uptight, and he is impeccable. And there might He's be impeccable. a reason for his nailing it, which is that um, he was, you know, during a time when homosexuality was just not as out in the open, was a homosexual who eventually, I think, he died of. Was it cancer or HIV? I can't. I'm sorry. I can't remember yeah. if he died of cancer or HIV. I, I'd have to look that and up. And I don't I turn think on. Think it was. I think it was. Um, I think it was AIDS, but I might be wrong. Well, anyway, so the idea that he maybe understands the ludicrousness of the judgmental nature of the Protestant English person maybe more than the others because he would have felt more scrutinized by them for being a homosexual. But I don't know. But he nails it. I, I read that he was. He one of the reasons that he wanted to play the voice of God in this movie, which I think he comes up once or twice, was, was you know because of the religious intolerance. You could just that imagine he he's playing his father. Although yeah. I don't want to damn his father. For all I know, his father was incredibly accepting of his lifestyle. I have no idea. I'm just saying you can imagine that this is his sort of how he sees them. You know. Mm. All right. So oh, I, I should say, looking it up, it uh, according to IMDb, he he died from spinal and throat cancer yeah i thought it was cancer i thought it was cancer i'm sorry for, you know, no no it's it's fine it's it's not you know it's hard because sometimes we often hear of homosexual actors especially early on dying of hiv kind of like uh, rock hudson anyway so he died in the 80s one one last thing yeah twice he plays a doctor in this movie that's right and he, he went to medical school himself although he's yes, never a practice and in fact the first sketch of the movie was his idea he was the one that noticed how the medical community was becoming more technologically driven than necessarily medicine driven. Maybe that's why he turned his back. Yeah, maybe. All right, next question. Um, does this movie achieve its goal, and what is its goal? Well, th- these are a series of loose skits, mm-hmm. okay, that they yeah. decide to tie up. So no, I, I, I don't think that you, that you can, but they, they, they even blow it off. I don't think you can say that they addressed the meaning of life. It was kind of funny. Uh, Michael Palin at the end dresses a woman, host, um, you know, tosses off really quickly what the meaning of life was. Be nice to each other, you know. It's like be nice to each other, eat healthy, try and get a walk in every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Which which I really And then it was also live in peace and harmony with your fellow man, which is not a bad, not a, you know, it was clearly tacked on, but also it's it's hard to argue. Well, it's trite. Yeah. It's trite. It's, it's your go-to meant, trite. It's, it's meant so, to be trite. Yeah, it is. It is. So um, I would say it didn't. It didn't achieve the purpose of its title, mm-hmm. but for the first half, it definitely achieved. You know, its its purpose of making you laugh. Okay. 
and this is and pointing out absurdities. This is my last thing, and this is something I actually have always been really interested in. This movie is directed by Terry Jones, okay, one of the cast members. Mostly, yes. Yeah, mostly, but this is what I want to touch on. Did Terry Gilliam steal Terry Jones' directing style? Because my answer to that question is yes. I think if you look at the first three Monty Python movies and most of Monty Python itself, which is directed mostly by Terry Jones. The reason Terry Jones is in the fewest sketches always with Monty Python is because he is the creative visual force behind them, not Terry Gilliam. Um, Terry Gilliam is sort of responsible for the crazy little animations that the TV show did. But if you look at the future of Terry Gilliam's career and why he's so celebrated, I think he partly ripped off Terry Jones. I, I, I can't think of any other way to say it. You know, Fisher King and Brazil, obviously, which I like a lot. But I think he's not only specifically ripping off Terry Jones. I think he's ripping off Terry Jones in this movie. I think this movie lays the blueprint for everything Terry Gilliam's going to do in the future. I'm really surprised to say that because I don't see it at all. Really? I, I think uh, Gilliam's vision is so wild. Um, I, I think he's in a class way above Terry Jones. As a director? And there, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I disagree. I, mean, I think Jones head is... and shoulders. I think he's head and shoulders above Terry Jones. Now, maybe if Terry Jones had uh, had the budgets that he was given mm-hmm. on some of his movies. Uh, well, did he make Eric the Viking? Terry Jones made Eric the Viking, which is like one of... There's a few Monty Python movies that aren't Monty Python movies, but might as well be. And one of them is Eric the Viking. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Terry Jones directed that. It's got Tim Robbins. Never saw it. Um, it's good, actually. It's good mm-hmm. comedy. Um, I think... I personally don't like Terry Gilliam. I think Brazil's good, and that's about it. Um... And I think he stole Terry Jones' directing style. I don't know any other way to say it. Just the way I see his... I think they're more crazy, but I think the foundation of what he's doing is what Terry Jones did in the first three Python movies. What we haven't mentioned is the part of the movie that took up a huge part of the budget. And I I think that looks so much different from the rest uh, rest of the movie. Well, it partly looks different, too, because of its scale and they're using models. But basically, the most controversial part of this movie is how it opens and maybe closes. I don't remember. But basically, there is a story that Terry Gilliam really wanted to do about a uh, a world in which uh, large and small banks are these buildings that are kind of roaming the earth like like pirate <laughs> ships and you know naval ships. And basically, one small—is it a bank? Yeah, one small bank decides it's, it's going to start raiding other big banks like pirates. And you see, you know, these bank buildings and they're kind of like moving along the cement like they're ships. And it's this enormous big budget spectacle. And it is really uh, Terry Gilliam's introduction into live action filmmaking. And it's incredibly ambitious. I think it's called the Crimson Permanent Assurance. I wrote it down. Yeah, ins- or insurance is about... Is it about assurance. Bank? Assurance. Okay. I looked it up. I, I, I mean... I, I'm not sure why it's called assurance with the yeah. A instead of insurance. It should be, but yeah, uh, and and there's scaffolding with yeah. coverings and scaffolding. I think it actually it drags. Like I think his. I think it drags. I think it goes on too a, a little too long. Yeah, I think. And uh, and it's it's they actually bring it up in the middle of the movie. Yeah, it actually impinges on another skit. I love Terry Gilliam. Really, I think, I think he is less an absurdist as he is a romantic. What are your favorite movies of his? Um. Uh, I love Time Bandits. Never seen it. It is terrific. Okay. Uh, the imagine the Imaginarium. I've uh, never seen that either. Uh, I can't. Doctor, uh, Doctor Pernosis. Yeah. Yeah. Very very vivid. Probably would have been great if Heath Ledger had had lived to to complete it. But then mm-hmm. then, then it gets into you talk about multiple roles. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the, the reverse. Uh, one of my favorite it was uh, 
oh gosh, uh, I can't even remember the title of it. It has Robin Williams in one of them. Fisher King or Cadillac Man? No, uh, not, neither. Neither? Uh, no, it's, um, I'm going to have to look it up. It, it's, uh, it's not the one where he's a homeless guy. It's extremely romantic. It's not the one where he's a homeless guy. No, that's, that's, that's Fisher King. That's Fisher King, Which right? I thought it was okay. I thought Fisher King is terrible. I, I, thought, I thought it was all right. It's been a long time since I've seen it. A very long time. Uh, no, th- this movie is is all about. It, I think it takes place during the um, the French Revolution. Okay, I, I can't believe I can't well, I remember notice, it. I um, notice you're not seeing Brazil. Well, I, I got to tell you, I I've never seen Brazil from beginning to end. What? See, that's no. crazy because I think that'll be the movie he's remembered for. Never saw, or, or if I did, I've long forgot it. I need to I need to watch it again. His style is amazing. Oh, also, um, another movie that I was really impressed with was, of course. You know, uh, um, 12 Monkeys. I'm not a fan of 12 Monkeys. See, my thing is, I like movies to be more restrained, generally speaking. Uh-huh. I like a, which is kind of the reason. Excuse me. Um, yeah. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, uh, yeah. I heard people like that. And that movie is is, is just pure romanticism. It's it's okay. not, it's not. Well, he's got it a does don- have tints, tints of, uh, yeah. of, of, of Terry Gilliam, and people know the story, is obsessed with Don Quixote. Yeah. And it seems like all his movies have the Don Quixote theme in them. Which is, you know, the the person striving for the impossible. Um, that being said, I like more restrained, more slowly paced movies, both visually and for storytelling. I don't like bonkers style filmmaking like like Cronenberg and Terry Gilliam. <laughs> so really not for me. Um, I think both have their place. Any final thoughts on meaning life in this podcast of dual roles? You know what? It's just I think it's the first time where we, we both admit that the, the movies that we picked, you know, are are not perfect. No, they have not major, at all. major yeah. problems. Still worth watching because there's, there's brilliance in both yes. of them. There's yes. no question. Absolutely. All right, Steve. It was good talking to you. Oh, we didn't do smart, not smart. Is Money Python uh, meaning life smart? Yes, it's smart. Yeah, I say it's smart too. Yeah. Okay, Steve. It's nice talking to you. Uh, until next time, and for anyone listening to this, please rate and review us on iTunes or however else you're listening to your podcast. It helps a lot. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs>